Good morning, everybody. Um, as Pastor Preston mentioned, I'm going to be talking about, I think, the least fun passage in Ephesians, um, talking about slavery and how the relationship between slave and master was in uh, the first century church and, and what that looked like. So let's just start. Um, I'm going to pray again because that's always good. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for today, for all the blessings you've given us. Thank you for this church. Um, Lord, just ask that um, the words I say will be yours, um, won't be mine, and that um, this will be um, helpful for us um, in our context today, and it would be something that builds us up to do your work. I ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so let's just jump right into it. So we're in Ephesians 6, um, chapter, or verse 5 through 9. So let's read that together if you have your Bible open. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So we read this passage, and we are kind of uncomfortable, because we're in a culture where slavery isn't that much of a thing, right? I mean, there's definitely still slavery in our world, and in raw numbers, there's more slaves today than there were then, um, in different parts of the world, and we... We, you know, there's, there's human trafficking. We see that here and we think, oh, that's wrong. And um, there's, an, I know in um, Libya, there's like open air slave markets again. There's, there's slavery happening all over the place. A lot of the things we wear and we use, like our phones and stuff, some of those things are being made by slaves in other parts of the world. And so we are all impacted still by slavery, but we just don't see it today, right? And it's not obvious like it was here. So we have to ask the question, well, what does this mean for the institution of slavery? What, what does this passage say to us about slavery then, and what does it say about slavery today? And what does this mean for us? Because it can be hard to say, okay, what is an analogous situation that we find ourselves in? Um, the, the preaching team, we had a meeting a, a few weeks ago, and we were talking about, okay, well, what, what do we compare slavery to? And there was, we just decided not really any good you know, any good thing that we have today that is, just fits perfectly. So we have to think about what does that mean for us today. So when we look at the very first word of this passage, it says slaves. And I know some of your translations may say bondservants. I looked into this a lot because I thought, well, why would you translate it slaves or not slaves? Um, and the majority of Bible translations will say slaves. Um, the way it's used almost everywhere else in the New Testament is slaves, um, some translators have, have decided that because the slaves in this time could, in theory, own property, they could own their own slaves, that they are different than other slaves, and so they called them bondservants. I don't buy that reasoning very well, you know, that's not, I don't think that's a great reason, so I'm going to use slaves, and if yours says bondservant, it means slaves, so that's, got that out of the way. So, slavery in ancient times. People have talked about how it's, sometimes you hear people say, oh, it's very different than what our country experienced with slavery, yes and no. Um, but when we hear slavery in our country, in our context, we automatically think about the North Atlantic slave trade and the, the kind of institution of slavery that 
um, much of our nation um, went through and was built upon, and we, and we have a hard time thinking about, well, what, what was happening now? So we're going to take a little tour. A few weeks ago, Pastor Preston talked about how he does, you have to eat your broccoli before your dessert, and like that was a bad thing. But I love broccoli, so we're going to do a lot of broccoli right now. Um, buckle up. So we're going to start with everyone's favorite Greek, Aristotle. So Aristotle was in the 5th century B.C., so 500 years before Jesus was born, right? And a lot of us know the name. He's really famous. He is a philosopher, an early scientist. He helped contribute to the way Western culture, Western thought evolved. Um, But he had some thoughts about slavery. So he lived in Athens, which at the time had about 250,000 people, which we here think that's not a lot for like a huge city. But in 500 BC, that was a lot of people. And in Athens, of those 250,000 people, roughly, between 80 and 100,000 of those people were slaves. So almost half of the entire city were enslaved people. So their whole economy and society was based and dependent on slavery. And so he, his idea of slavery was that some people were born to be slaves, and he said nature created some to be slaves and others to be masters. So the idea when we, read, when we talk more about it is natural slaves and natural masters. And he thought that all the natural slaves were anyone who wasn't Greek. So um, the masters were all Greeks. So if you were from Germany, what is now Germany, or you're from France or Turkey or any of those other places around Greece, it was your destiny to be a slave of the Greeks. And what a blessing it would be for you because you got to be exposed to Greek culture and thought and art and food and all these things. That's what, that's what Aristotle thought. And because nature had dictated that you were a slave, the idea of freeing a slave, that, that wasn't even a concept. There was no idea that as a slave in that time, you could be free because you were naturally a slave. So there's no alternative. But we move through time and we come to our, uh, maybe a new friend for some of you, uh, Philo of Alexandria. So Philo of Alexandria was uh, a Jewish thinker, a Jewish philosopher. He lived between 20 BC and 50 AD. So right when Jesus was walking around, Philo was walking around. And um, Philo probably had heard of Jesus. But as a Jew, his ideas were very influenced by the Old Testament and what the Old Testament says about slavery. Um, And yes, we have to acknowledge that the Old Testament permits and talks about how to have slaves. Um, I remember reading, I don't remember who it was now. A while ago, I was reading a book, and they were talking about this. And they were saying, yes, Israel had slaves. Everyone surrounding them had slaves. And, and the way, but the way God had instituted slavery in Israel was very different, right? You have the year of Jubilee when slaves get set free. You have um, codes about how you can't abuse your slaves. You can't beat your slaves. You can't kill your slaves. This is all very different than the culture around them. And so this is what was influencing Philo. And he said um, that there is no such thing as a natural slave or master. That all people bear the image of God and are of the same nature. They start off, everyone starts off with a level playing field in Philo's um, conception. And he, and he said, so it wasn't that like you were born a slave, you enter into slavery because of different circumstances. He thought that freedom was a great blessing, that it was something that slaves should look to and look forward to. And he talked about um, the Jubilee and how in the year of Jubilee, slaves should be freed. But he also said that masters, if you are freeing a slave in the year of Jubilee, you should be giving them a gift to go with them. Because a lot of people at the time entered into slavery because they were so poor that it was like, I either starve to death or I'm a slave. Which one sounds better to you? And maybe neither of them sound good to you, but you have to make a choice, right? 
So he said, in order to make sure those people who were slaves out of poverty or whatever don't fall back into poverty and have to be a slave again, give them a gift as they go. He also um, talked about how um, if, a, if a slave had committed a crime, allegedly, or was going to be punished because they had been convicted of a crime, it was up to a, a different person, not the master, a different judge to do that because he wanted to um, prevent as much abuse of the slave as possible. And he also had the idea that on the Sabbath, the slave shouldn't work, even though they're a slave. The master should do some stuff for himself that day, and the slave should be able to rest and to worship God on that day. So another idea that was floating around um, the ancient world at this time was from this guy um, named Seneca the Younger. And Seneca is the father of Stoicism. You may have heard of it. It's just a a different school of philosophy and thought that really focuses on, like, self-control and you governing yourself very well, and in doing so, you can have mastery over other things in your life. So his thoughts on, because he's a Stoic, the the thoughts he had on slavery revolved around the master's self-control. He rejected the idea of natural slave and master um, that Aristotle put forth, He said that only your body could be enslaved, not your mind, which is an idea that really resonates, I think, with with American culture and ideals. Um, But he was also conflicted about having slaves because he thought it was wrong to use um, domination and force on people. Um, But you kind of have to do that to have slaves, right? Um, And he ultimately um, had his own slaves help him commit suicide at the end of his life. So he's kind of a mixed bag of ideas about slavery. We don't really know what to do with him. And then finally, we have the general idea that was floating around the Roman Empire at this time about slavery. So generally, people in in the Roman Empire, which stretched all the way from Spain, you know, Turkey, Israel, even further south than that, um, into Africa, you know, most of the known world, as as the Western people thought, um, these were kind of the ideas. So they didn't think you had natural slaves. You weren't born a slave. You became a slave because of bad luck or fate. Um, and we, people tried not to enslave other Roman citizens, but they still did because there's only so many people, and if you want slaves, you've got to get them from somewhere. Um, they viewed slaves as being inferior to everybody else. They thought that they were weak and lazy and cruel and cowardly and conniving, and they lacked wisdom and they lacked common sense. In fact, they thought that if you um, were a slave and you were going to be testifying in front of a court, you would be beaten just to be able to tell the truth. So they would torture slaves all the time just to get them to to tell the truth. So a slave also had no personal autonomy, so they had no decision about what they would do with their life. Um, No bodily autonomy, they had no choice what to do with their body. If you wanted to be, if your master wanted to brand you or give you a a sick tattoo or do whatever, give you a new haircut, they could do that. And more than that, they could, and often did, They would uh, sexually assault and abuse their slaves. They would physically assault and abuse their slaves. And there was nothing that anyone could say about it that was all legal, justified, some even thought moral. Um, They were lowest in this hierarchy of slave, freed, and free. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, So if you were freed, because you could become freed, you'd have to pay your master a sum of money. And then they would have, they would do one of three things. They would either have this mock trial where they would have like a judge, the master, and the slave all get together and the, the judge would, um, would pronounce that a great injustice has been done and that this slave was falsely imprisoned for all these years and then the master was just doing, doing a, the just and right thing and freeing him, which all this was nonsense, obviously. They just enslaved somebody and it wasn't, this was not a real thing. This happened, but rarely. More often, 
um, the master would just, when the census, census would come out, the master would just include the name of the slave in the family role, and boom, you're freed. Um, or the owner would testify just in public that this person was free. Now, all of this costs money. You had to pay your master. So as a slave, how do you get money? You do whatever you can to get money. If your, your master is done with you for the day, you don't have to work for him anymore, you might try and go and hustle, sweep someone's porch, you know, whatever you could do to make money. But that master was entitled to that money, so he could just take it from you whenever. So you had to have a really, kind of really nice master to even allow you to save the money to buy your freedom, because it was all his money anyway. Um, and I keep saying his, because it was only really men that owned slaves. Some women owned slaves, but they were responsible. The, the, the husband of that woman was still responsible for them, so I'm going to keep using he when I say masters. Um, so if you were freed, there were some pros. So you had protection from further abuse because you're not a slave anymore. They can't rape you. They can't beat you. They can't sell your children. They can't, you know, leave you out without any uh, shelter. You could pursue your own work, your own leisure. You could do whatever occupation you wanted to do, not whatever you were forced to do. But there were still some cons in that you had to still pay a portion of everything you made to your former master. So we say former master, but he's kind of still your master because you always have to give him money. Um, and you were still viewed as lower for having been a slave, both socially and morally, because they viewed the slaves as morally deficient. If you bought your way out of that, you've not really changed your moral situation, right? You just had money, and now you're different. Um, almost no female slaves were freed. And if you were a female and wanted to be freed, you had to basically marry the owner or your owner's son. And if you were um, a slave in agriculture or mining, there's probably no chance of you being freed. You were just going to die doing the labor. So when we say ancient slavery was also very different from the slavery that our country experienced, kind of, if you were in certain roles. If you worked for the emperor carrying around his, his scrolls of the law or whatever, yeah, that might be different for you. You might have a higher status among slaves, but you were still a slave. Um, so we have to kind of keep that in tension. So we look at this Roman social hierarchy, and there's a slide for that. Yeah, the three types of people in Rome were slaves, freed, and freed. So if you are a kid with a sheet, there's your answer. But we look at this, this social hierarchy on the next one, and we see that the free people are on top, the freed people are somewhere in the middle, and the slaves are at the bottom. So that's, that's setting the stage for, for this letter and for this instruction to the slaves. So when we think about Ephesians and who it's being written to, right, it's written to the church in Ephesus. There are slaves and free believers. There are freed believers there too, um, all in the same body. And when this letter is being read, they're all hearing this at the same time. So as we, think, we hear the, the instructions to the slaves, you have to remember that the master is hearing these things too. And when we hear the instructions to the master, the slaves are hearing these things too. Probably between this is a wide margin that I saw when I was doing some research, but between 15 and 35% of the Ephesian church were slaves, okay? So, I mean, that's a big number. It could be 15, could be 35. Where is it? Somewhere in there, a lot of the church was slaves. A significant portion were slaves. And not all of those slaves had Christian masters. Some of their masters would have been in the room with them. Some of their masters would have been somewhere else and just had permitted them to come to church. Or maybe they snuck out. No, we don't know. All right, that's slaves. How was that broccoli? <laughs> um, so we start off in verse 5, and it says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. 
The, the Greek for obey your, your, your human masters is obey your masters in the flesh. So by putting that in the flesh distinction, um, Paul is acknowledging that there is more than one master, right? If, if your only master is your earthly master, you don't have to make the distinction that there's a, an earthly master and something else. And who is the other master? Well, it's God. You have your heavenly master and you have your earthly master. Um, and this statement seems not that interesting until, um, until you look a little more at what it means to obey here. And I, I'm, we've already established that I'm a nerd. And people always talk about the two things you don't talk about at the dinner table are what? Religion and politics. Well, I love talking about both of those things and how they interact. So I've been reading a lot of books about these things. And I came across this book by a, uh, a Mennonite theologian. Um, the book's called The Politics of Jesus. It's by John Howard Yoder. I'm going to put a little asterisk up there and, and acknowledge that, yes, the end of his life, he definitely had some abuses of power and abuse of people. Um, but I think the thought here is still valid and good. just want to caveat that, yes, I understand he hurt some people, and I don't want to brush that under the rug. But he said this about this passage in his book, Politics of Jesus. He said, Here begins the revolutionary innovation in the early, Christ early Christian style of ethical thinking. The subordinate person in the social order is addressed as a moral agent. Here we have a faith that assigns personal moral responsibility to those who had no legal or moral status in their culture and makes them decision makers. You may not understand what that says, so let me unpack it for you. So, um, what is a moral agent? It's a person who can decide to do right or wrong. If, you're not, if you don't have moral agency, you don't have a choice in what you're doing. Um, you can have personal agency to just do anything. I choose to, to sweep the floor. I choose to not sweep the floor. I choose to eat food. I choose to not eat food. That's agency. But moral agency is choosing right versus wrong. And in the society that Paul is writing in, the slave didn't have a choice, right? It was just and right that the slave was enslaved, and they didn't have a choice whether that was good or bad. They should just do it. But when Paul is saying and commanding them to obey your human masters, you don't have to command someone to do something if there's no other choice. If they only could obey, you don't need to tell them to do that. That's the only choice. Choice A is what I'm doing. But because there's choice B of disobedience, he has to give them this choice and say, listen, you need to obey your earthly masters. He's giving them this, this agency, this status that they had never had before, that slaves did not experience before. Um, He goes on and says, to do this with fear and trembling. And yes, it was probably very true that many slaves were afraid of their masters. Their masters could do whatever they wanted to the slave, right? You could, like I said, sell your children, sell your spouse, beat you, kill you, anything. Do whatever they wanted to you. Um, so there were probably some who were afraid of their masters. But we see this concept of, of fear in this sense um, earlier in chapter 5, verse 21. He finishes the sentence, and he says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, the fear of Christ, obviously, we're not supposed to be afraid of Jesus in that sense. We shouldn't be kept up at night at the thought of Jesus, um, not because we're afraid, at least, maybe because we just think about how great he is um, and how much he's done for our lives. But it's this sense of respect. So, slaves, you need to obey your masters in a sense of respect, um, in, this, in the same way that you would Christ. So our, the slave's obedience to the master is a choice that they have, and they need to choose to do that in a, the same way that they are um, being obedient to Christ. We tracking? Everything makes sense? So he continues in verse 6, and he says, 
Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. So why work at all? Well, they work to do God's will. And what is his will for the believer? His will for the believer is to know him and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Catechism says. It's to um, continue to do the things that Paul has previously told them about, as far as you know, having your speech be building up the body, um, the ways he talked about in Ephesians 2, how you were this, but now you're that. You know, we, we've talked all, already about some of the things that the will um, of God is for the believer. And I skipped a note. So, so this is kind of revolutionary for the slave as well, because they get to actually know the will of God. Um, they can... This is a new thought. Um, Lynn Kohick, in her commentary that I've been working through, she said, Paul indicates that the slave's work, although mandated by their owner, is nevertheless an opportunity for them to model the character of Christ. So when you are doing things, um, you know, as, not as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, what are you doing? You are, you're, have an opportunity to model Jesus. Um, we work, they work not to get accolades, not to be people pleasers, um, or praised, they serve because Christ served. He served in a lot of ways, right? He fed 5,000 people. He washed his disciples' feet. He died on the cross for the people he loves um, and in a way of, in a service to them in some ways. So in the same way, you need to be serving as a slave and do it when, when no one's watching. As a kid growing up with, you know, in scouts or at school or in sports or whatever, uh, you'd hear about integrity, and people would always define integrity as to doing the right thing when no one's looking. And Paul here is, is telling the slaves that they need to have integrity, and they need to have integrity. Why? Well, because Christ had integrity, so, so you show it too. So they're modeling their, when, when modeling Christ in their work, who is the slave serving? They're sl- serving their ultimate master. They're serving God. And he uses the phrase, um, as slaves of Christ. And we've seen this phrase already before when Paul talks about himself as a slave of Christ. You see it in other letters where Paul talks about himself as a slave of Christ. Other apostles refer to themselves as slaves of Christ. So this language, um, it's, it's very likely that the Christians in Ephesus had heard of other letters from Paul, had maybe read or been read. The letters had been read to them. They had received copies of them. Um, so they've seen this phrase before very likely. And so this is a phrase that they know that the apostles are using, and now Paul is using it for slaves. Another way that he is elevating the status of slaves, not to the same level as the master is in some sense. He's not saying you guys are perfectly equal and therefore you don't have to work for your master anymore. But he is elevating them from this, from this thing that doesn't have moral agency, from a piece of property to a human being, to an image bearer of God, to being the same in value and worth as everybody else. By, by honoring them in this way. He continues in verse 7 and 8. He says, Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. And we're going to stop there. Again, who are the slaves ultimately serving? They're serving God. Their obedience to their master is a service to God. It's, it's worship of God. If the things done by the slave are for Christ and not the master, then that kind of um, undercuts the opinion of the master in, in some ways. And let me explain. So, I think we've all experienced, either if you're a kid and in school or an adult in your work life or some other way, where someone's instructed you to do something. 
Maybe you're a kid and they say, you need to write a report on this book or build a diorama or, you know, whatever assignment you have in school. And you work just the hardest you possibly can. You do the best job you can, and the teacher still gives you a, a C or a D or an F or an E, depending on what district you're in. Um, and, and so that might, that might be something that happens. And you think, ah, but I worked so hard on this. I gave everything to this project. Or you're a grown-up, and your boss tells you, I need you to do this. I need it done by this day. And you think you've done everything, and they come back, and you're like, that just, that just wasn't good enough. That report didn't have everything I wanted. But you've done everything you can, and you, tr- you, just, you worked your hardest. You know, the Bible says to do all things as if for Christ. And, and you really took that on, and you said, I'm going to do this like I'm doing it for the Lord. A human being can still say, that's not good enough. But when we are saying, well, serve the, serve the Lord, not people, it kind of doesn't really matter so much what the people say. It matters, obviously, for your status of your employment. Maybe you'll get fired, even though you tried your hardest. Maybe you'll get a bad grade, even though you tried your hardest. But you can at least know that your conscience is clear because you have served God the best you could. Maybe you fell short of the grade, whatever. But this is kind of, I think this is what Paul is getting at. He's saying, serve with a good attitude, as to the Lord, not for people. You're serving God here. And so if people don't like it, you're serving God here. He continues and he says that knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive back from the Lord. I think this one's kind of hard for me to process sometimes because when I see passages like this where there's a promise from God, um, I'm so accustomed to being like, I'm not going to fall into this prosperity gospel nonsense. That I have a hard time accepting that, yes, God does promise us some things. If we do X, he will do Y. And so sometimes it's hard for me to, to get my mind around. But this is, this is one of those things that God says, if you, whatever good you do, I'm going to re- repay that. God's justice is impartial. He's saying for the slave and the free, the slave and the master are going to receive this. It doesn't matter what your social status is. Um, he's not judging a difference between you because of that. Um, this is, again, an elevation of the slave's, slave's deeds because they were viewed as untrustworthy, lazy, sneaky. But both slave and free will be rewarded for good deeds, not just the free whose deeds are good and not motivated out of whatever. You know, they had to beat the slaves just to tell the truth. So how could anything they do be good? Well, Paul's saying, whatever good thing you do, if it's the master or the slave, God's still rewarding those things. And we see, interestingly, that Paul is pretty consistent with this idea. In Colossians 3, he gives kind of, it's almost the same. I'll read it to you and you'll understand. It's almost the same idea, but it's a little different. Um, Instead of having this idea of God's going to reward the good things, it's a caution against that God's going to punish the bad things. So Colossians 3, 23, he says, Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. And does that seem similar? That's pretty close, right? But it's just the opposite idea. So Paul is consistent in this idea. Sometimes I think we look at passages and we say, well, he said it here, but does he say it anywhere else? Yeah, he does. He continues on. And now we get to the part of the passage where he finally addresses the masters. The masters have been sitting here probably pretty pleased, like, ah, good. He's telling them to obey me. He's telling them to work really hard. Good, good, good. And then he gets to the masters and he says, Masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Now I can just see a master sitting there thinking, hmm, I'm a little uncomfortable now because I've been told I have a master, but I am a master. 
Um, so this phrase that I've highlighted up there, in the same way, this is very controversial. When I was studying this thing, there's not a clear answer as to what this means. Um, there are a range of ideas. So when we go back to Philo of Alexandria, he wasn't reading this, but again, he had this idea that masters were to take care of themselves on the Sabbath and give their slaves a break. And um, now to a Christian, John Chrysostom, he lived between 347 and 407 AD. He was one of the church fathers from Antioch, and he thought that Paul was arguing that masters should serve their slaves. And he used um, Mark 10, 41 through 45, which is, um, let me look it up real quick. This is the passage where he says, um, when the ten disciples heard, heard this, they began um, to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever among you wants to become great um, will be your slave, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is what he used to say, slaves, you should be serving masters. And so we have a spectrum of ideas. And I'm not going to say this is right, this is right, because I don't know. I'm not an expert on ancient Greek. I've just read a bunch of people who were, and they disagree. So I don't, I don't know what this means. But whatever the meaning may be, whatever position we take, masters are clearly need to be following this, at least some of the same commands as slaves. And I think it's clear when you look at the, pa the rest of the passage, there's a lot of things we're told to do to love one another, to build each other up with, with our words, to use our gifts for the building up of the body, that we are one body. There's all these ideas about our behavior as Christians towards each other. And so at minimum, maybe you can take it further. I'm not saying you can, but at minimum, the masters need to be doing these things. They need to be loving their slaves as they love themselves, right? That's the commandment of Jesus, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So there's no special treatment for the privileged, um, God doesn't show favoritism. And he tells them to do this without threatening them. He previously wrote, again, we've, we've talked about this, that our speech needs to be for the building up of the body of Christ, for the um, edification of believers. Threats can't do that. You can't be like, if you don't do this job for me, if you don't clean up the, all this trash I threw on the ground, I'm going to beat you so hard. That's not, that's not building up the body. That's not edification. If you don't you know, bring all the best wine out to my party goers right now. Um, I'm going to sell your children. That's, that doesn't build up the body. That's not helpful um, for the body of Christ. So threats have no place in the mindset of building one, one another up. Um, masters could do, like I said, they could do whatever they wanted to slaves, but in taking away the master's use of threats, Paul is affirming a community of mutual love, not domination. There's still a hierarchy of authority. The master clearly still has some authority over his slave, but they're still supposed to mutually love each other. And he says, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, there is no favoritism with him. So why do we stop threatening? Why do we do these things? Because they're both slaves to God. A paraphrase I found about um, this idea of being no favoritism is he said, um, I don't remember where it was, or I'd give them credit. They said, God is not moved by their so-called higher social position. God doesn't care that the master is, in the eyes of the world, above the freed and the slave. He doesn't care about that. He sees all people as, as creations of his, um, and all are set, held to the same standard. He doesn't say, well, you're higher on the totem pole, so I'm going to give you a pass. 
So we get through all of this, and we have to ask these questions. We come back to the questions. So what does this do for the institution of slavery? Well, this is, this is a topic that is, does come up. You may think, well, we don't have slaves, so it doesn't really matter. But if you think about um, the area of apologetics, of people giving a defense for their faith, in the early 20th century, we had a lot of talk about, in 19th century too, is God real? There were a lot of philosophers that were just arguing this question, of God, is God real, is he not? Is God dead, as Nietzsche said? What, what's the deal with God? In the 60s and 70s, you had discussions about, um, about Jesus and like, did he exist? Who was he? Was he Lord? Was he a legend? Was he a lunatic? You had the Jesus people movement starting to happen. All these ideas about Jesus. In the 80s and 90s, there were debates about specific biblical truth claims, about creation, about sexual ethics. Obviously, some of these things are still going on, but these were like the main apologetic debates. In the 2000s, when I was getting into this kind of stuff, there was discussion of, is religion even good? And now, people are talking about, is the church even safe? You, you know, you see all these cases of abuse from pastors or elders or people within the church. Um, some of those people pushing it under the rug. Some people who had abused members of their church, continuing to pastor just in other places. Um, this is the big debates. But, but when we talk about the 2000s and is religion even good, you had these guys that were called the new atheists. And there were, these, there were more than four, but the four, there were four big ones. There was Sam Harris. There was Richard, Richard Dawkins. Um, I'm going to forget their names. There was Christopher Hitchens, and he's bald. He has a goatee. Daniel Dennett. That's who it was. Okay, those names may mean nothing to you, but um, Richard Dawkins wrote this book, um, The God Delusion, and in The God Delusion, he talks about how God is just this moral monster because he encouraged genocide, because he inhibited the rights of women and non-Israelites, because he flooded the earth, like all these reasons. But one of the things he says is because he approves of and encourages slavery, God's a moral monster. So what do we do with slavery when this question is out there in our culture and we have to answer it? We have to know what to say. Does Paul or Jesus or Peter or James or any of the people writing in the New Testament, do any of them get rid of it? No. They don't say, don't do this thing. They don't come out and say that sentence. They don't say that phrase. Do we need to construct an elaborate defense and defend the Bible? No. God doesn't need us to defend him. God says, provide a defense for the hope you have in him, but he doesn't say, you need to defend me. God's got that covered. He created the world. <laughs> he sustains the world. He created things we don't even know about. He doesn't need our help to defend the things he says. So what do we do with slavery? What do we, where are we going to go? Luckily for us, kind of, there's a, a whole book, which is probably in your Bible, maybe a page, maybe a page and a half, if you have large print, the book of Philemon. And we're not going to read it now because, I mean, we could. It's not that long, but we'll just, we'll just trust me on my, on my uh, don't trust me. Look it up later. But, but we're just gonna, I'm just going to give you a summary. You can read it later, okay? Um, so Paul's writing this letter to Philemon. He's writing about this guy named Onesimus. Who's Onesimus? Onesimus is Philemon's slave. Philemon lives in Ephesus. How convenient. We're reading a letter to the Ephesians. And so Philemon, uh, or Paul writes to Philemon, asking him to take Onesimus back. Onesimus has run away. We're not quite sure exactly what's, how the circumstances are that Onesimus has ended up not in Ephesus and with Paul, but he's there. And Philemon would be well within his rights to, if Onesimus comes back, to do all kinds of bad things to him. He could beat him. He could get him thrown in jail. He could do whatever he wants. And, he, and Paul says to him, 
I want you to take Onesimus back, not as a slave, but, quote, as my very own heart. And... Too much hand talking. All right. So, as my very own heart and as a dearly beloved brother. He's, he just wants him to come back. He says, he's of no use to you now, but he could be valuable to you now. He's valuable to me. I could keep him, but I know that you have the rights to him as his master, so I'm going to send him back. And so, as, his, as Paul's very own heart, as a dearly beloved brother, and in verse 21 he says, since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So we say, well, what does that mean for Onesimus? Well, the Bible does not, the scriptures themselves do not tell us exactly, and Onesimus went home and Philemon freed him. It doesn't say that. Now, traditional church history, the view is that Onesimus eventually became the bishop of Ephesus, and he was a freed man at the time that happened. I'm not saying that's necessarily true. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say it, but this is the traditional view that Christians have had since then. So, now we come to my bucket. And we ask, what does the Bible say about slavery? And I want to be over here. So I have a cup, and it's a normal cup, and you've seen this cup. You may have drank out of this cup. I feel like, I feel like a magician, but because I'm in church, I'd be an illusionist. Um, so, but it's just a normal cup. Everything's normal. And this is a bucket from my favorite store in the world, Menards, and it has water in it, and I have this nail. And so we're talking about slavery, and what does the Bible say about slavery? Does it get rid of it? All right. Does he say no slavery? No. But he does say, masters, stop threatening your slaves. He does say masters and slaves have the same master. He does say that slaves are part of the same body. He does say that um, slaves are people, not property. He does say that uh, slaves have moral agency. They say you were bought with a price, so don't become a slave. They say if you are a slave, you should try to become free. Onesimus should be welcomed as a brother, as my very own heart. Um, and on it goes. Onesimus traditionally becomes the bishop or, of Ephesus. So we look at this and say, well, does the Bible outright outlaw slavery? No. But this cup really doesn't work anymore, does it? This cup is useless. So is slavery still in existence in the ancient world? Yes. Does it work the same way anymore? No. It can't. The gospel has changed, as we've talked about before, the gospel revealed changes everything. And it changes slavery, and it changes our lives and how we view slavery. So it's kind of this death by a thousand cuts thing. So what about today? What do we do with what Paul is talking about here? And I would like to turn your attention to this jolly soul. There he is. Oh, what a guy. So if you're a nerd, you might know who this is. If you're not, I'll tell you. This guy's name is Tom Bombadil. So I said in my last sermon, we talked about, um, I made some reference to Lord of the Rings. And uh, then when I got done reading a commentaries, just as my reading intake, I decided to do something lighter. So I went with Lord of the Rings. And, um, you know, Katie said last time, she's like, you know, you said I was a big Lord of the Rings nerd, but I'm not that big of a Lord of the Rings nerd. But then whatever reference I made, something, I don't remember what it was. She's like, you should have made this reference about this part of Lord of the Rings. Thus proving she's a giant Lord of the Rings nerd. But I'm joining her in this now, and we're talking about Tom Bombadil. So, who's this guy? Well, he's not a man, and he's not a hobbit. He's somewhere in between. We don't really know. He's described as being a ma the ma not the master, but master of the forest and the rivers and the streams and the lakes and everything. He's not the master, but he's master. 
And he runs all over the place singing all the time, and mostly nonsense. I'm going to read you one of the things he sings. I'm not going to sing it because I don't know the tune, but this is what he sang. Hey doll, Mary doll, ring-a-dong dillo, ring-a-dong hop-along, fa-law the willow, tom-bomb jolly tom, tom-bombadillo. Just nonsense about himself. He just sings his stuff. And the hobbits encounter him when they're being, like, basically eaten by a tree. Just read the book. It'll make sense. Um, and he rescues them by singing to the tree. And then they meet his wife, who's the daughter of a river. Again, read the book. It'll make sense. And then, and then they, like, get into some trouble later on. And he told them, if you get in trouble, just sing this song, and I'll appear, and I'll help you. And they sing the song, and there he is. And he's, like, this all-powerful being, but he's not a god but he's, not, he's, he's a master, but he's not the master. He's this big mystery that people argue about. And I found out that there are people called Tolkien scholars, and that's their job, apparently, is to just read Lord of the Rings and tell you about it, which sounds fun. Um, but they, some people have said he's like um, this archangel manifested. He's Tolkien himself, putting himself into the book, all these different ideas. Um, but he sings all the time, and that's what I want to come back to. And people look at him like he's crazy because he sings all the time. And why is singing significant? Well, Tolkien also wrote this book called The Silmarillion, which is this big history book that tells the history of this fictional place called Middle-earth. And Katie's read it like three times, so tell me she's not a nerd. Um, what? Twice. Whatever. <laughs> we were watching the Amazon Lord of the Rings show a while back, and um, some character would show up, and she'd be like, I have to go consult the texts. And she'd go get the book off the shelf and like, try and look up that person to see if the show did it right. So, um, anyway, in this, this history of Middle-earth, there is um, basically a God figure, right? Tolkien was, was a Christian, so he was putting in um, Christian ideas. And so, in his telling of Middle-earth, in the creation of Middle-earth, there's this, there's this character named, I'm not going to say it right, Iru Iluvatar. And that is, like, the supreme God of Middle-earth. And what does he do? Well, he sings the universe and everything in it into existence, and so I'm going to draw this. Now, now it'll make sense, hopefully. Why am I talking about Tom Bombadil? Tom Bombadil is speaking the language of his creator all the time. And people think he's insane for doing it. When Paul tells slaves and masters to do these different things, they're reflecting their creator in a similar way that I think Tom Bombadil is reflecting his creator. He's singing all the time. He looks insane when he does it. Paul's saying to the masters, treat your slaves with love. Treat them with dignity. Treat them as human beings and not as objects and property. And what is that going to look like to the rest of the world? A world that says that slaves aren't really people, they're just property, they have no agency, they have no freedom of thought or freedom to choose right or wrong. They're just machines, basically. You're going to look pretty nuts when, when your buddy comes up and says, hey, can you lend me your slave? i got to do this insert unpleasant task here. And you say, no, I don't think he'd like to do that, or I'm not going to subject my slave to this. Your friend's going to say, what do you mean you're not going to subject your slave to it? That's all you do is subject slaves to things. So when we think about today, and we think about the commands that Paul gives us here, we're going to have to think about how we're going to look strange to the world when we reflect our creator. And in what ways are we going to do that? Again, I think the easiest, closest thing, that's not that close, but closest thing is, is the idea of work or school for you kids. That um, you have an you're an employee and you have a boss, or you're a student and you have a teacher. So if you're a student or you're an employee, you need to work hard like you're working for the Lord. You need to work hard when no one's around. You need to work diligently even though you don't get rec recognition for it. And even when others aren't, um, even when others aren't uh, rewarding you for it, God will reward your good deeds. We need to think about that as an employee or as a student. 
I'm reminded of when I was a student in fourth grade, Mr. Principe's class, we had to memorize a passage from a Martin Luther King Jr. sermon. And in that sermon, um, he talks about how if you're a street sweeper, you need to sweep sweets, sweep streets um, in the best way you can. He says to sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted paintings. And he says that if you're um, if, you're, if you can't be the pine on top of the hill, be a shrub in the valley, but be the best shrub in the valley that you can be. So if you're an employee, you're a student, you maybe can't be the master, the teacher, the boss, but be the best in your station that you can be. Work hard like, like you're working for Jesus because you are. Work hard to honor God because that's how you are going to do it. And if you're the employer or the boss or the teacher, teacher treat your students, your employees, the people under your authority well. Show them the love of Christ. Your master is in heaven, so don't think that you're better than all the people you work for, even if you're the very top of your organization, whatever that is. If you're the principal and you think, well, no one's really above me, I guess someone is. If, you know, if, if you're the CEO of some huge company and no one's above you, you get to make all the choices and you can think, I can do whatever I want because I'm the boss. You're not. God's your boss. You have a master. Um, so you should be working hard for Christ's glory as well. You should not be threatening. How often do we see this in, in our jobs, right? They'll say, hey, you need to do this thing, and if you don't, I'm going to fire you. Or you need to do, if you're a teacher, you need to do this thing right now, or else I'm going to call your parents and do, and maybe there's a place for that in discipline, I don't know. But there's, there's ways that you can threaten in these, in these instances, and you shouldn't do it. Um, you should encourage, because that's the way that Christ tells us to talk to each other. That's the way Christ tells us to interact with one another. So I hope that in looking at this passage, we have a different view of it than just, oh, clearly Paul is affirming slavery, which is things that people have said before, things that people will continue to say. Um, I don't think that's true. Um, I think we see, again, the gospel, the love of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus revealed in the way that the slaves and masters are supposed to love each other, sacrifice for each other, while maintaining still that there is this difference of authority here. I don't think he gets rid of that, but there's definitely a way that that authority interacts with the subordinate and the way the subordinate interacts with the authority. Um, and you learned about Tom Bombadil. So I think today was a good day. <laughs>